Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week is absolute chaos in the best possible way. Excitingly, we don't have just one guest this week, nor two, nor even three. No, to celebrate the release of Screams from the Dark, Ellen Datlow's massive anthology of stories about monsters and the monstrous, only a full roster of four guests would do. That's one more than we had on for Dark Stars, and it's the maximum number this piece of software that I use can handle. Consequently, there is much interruption, overlap, manic laughter and general cacophony, and I've edited much of that out but left enough in to give you a flavour of how hard it was to corral four very strongly opinionated horror writers. Basically, I gave up and just let them do their thing. Normal mannered standards will resume next week, but this time, enjoy the revel. A change that is as good as a rest, they say. And amidst it all, we still manage to pursue a fascinating conversation about the beasts that lurk in the wilds, and those that are sprinkled throughout humanity's family tree. We discuss what makes a monster, why we love them, where they fit in our modern, hyper-connected world, and then four horror authors spend a good few minutes telling me why Bigfoot isn't real. Yet I remain undiminished. (laughs) Remember, you can support this show on Patreon. Just click the show notes or visit patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod for loads of bonus content. I think it's worth it, but I would say that, wouldn't I? So if you don't trust my words on the matter, you can ask Michael, Kate, Kim, Helen, Jason, Jennifer and Victoria, all of whom signed up recently. And thanks so much, guys. But anyway, back to the show and here we go. Off to the margins on the map, where there definitely do be monsters. Let's talk scared. Hello, folks, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you all? Happy to be here. Good. Wonderful. Doing great. That's all of us. Excellent. Thank you for joining this little get-together. I hope you're all well. I think the first thing to do is to orientate the listeners with with whose voice belongs to who, because we are Legion. So, Ellen, say hi. Hi, this is Ellen Datlow. I'm the editor of the book. Chickadilly, how are you? Hi, hi, I'm Chico Dili Emelamadu, and my story, the special one, has been published in this anthology. Excellent. Nathan? Hi, this is Nathan Ballingrude. And no one's going to mistake your Texan drawl, Joe, but say hi anyway. Hello, this is Joe Lansdale. We've all got lovely, differentiated, discreet voices. That that will help. Um, anyway, I'm so glad you're all here, because how often do you get to gather around with some top-notch horror authors and talk about monsters? Uh, And that is the topic of the day, because you're all here to celebrate the publication of Screams from the Dark, a collection of 29 tales of monsters and the monstrous. Um, I read it on my recent holiday and loved it. And that seems to be a bit of a trend for me, Ellen, because I read your Shirley Jackson anthology on my previous trip abroad. And you know how much I adored that. Thank you. Ellen, you start us off, if you will. Tell us about this collection, the inspiration behind this anthology. What drew you to monsters? Well, first of all, I did an anthology of reprint stories about monsters called The Monstrous for Tachyon several years ago. And as I said, that was all reprints. 
And I tried to get a variety of different kinds of monsters and expand not just monsters, but monstrousness and what that means. And so uh, I was approached by the, uh, the publisher of Nightfire a few years ago, Fritz Foy. And he wanted, we wanted to do an anthology together. And I initially wanted to do a non-theme anthology, which is what I always want to do, but no one ever wants to publish them. <laughs> we usually doesn't. So um, we came up with the idea of monsters, which is so broad that it was almost a non-theme anthology. So I felt I could do this and, you know, I can start from the germ of what I did with the reprint anthology, which is just kind of explore what the idea of monstrousness is, not just monsters that we read about or, you know, from myth. And I, also I wanted to get the idea from around the world as a little bit as much as, or as much as I could. Um, so that's kind of where it, the germ came from. Uh, you know, a discussion with a publisher. I was like, well, what should I do now? You know, that's how a lot of my anthologies work. <laughs> so that's basically where it came, you know, as I, and hopefully you get a publisher who agrees with you. So yeah, that sounds great. So I went after writers who I work with all the time. And then I went after writers who I, who I've met more recently and, and whose work I've read occasionally. And that's how I put it together. Basically. It's very, it's longer than most of my anthologies. Um, my only other really long one of originals was Echoes, the ghost story anthology. Mm-hmm. And that was longer. Um, it's actually more difficult to organize and put together an anthology the longer it is because you have more to juggle. 29 stories were interesting to juggle because it's harder to remember what they're all about and to figure out the order and how they work together. I mean, it is a very long book. Why, first of all, I suppose, why 29 and not around in 30? I don't know. No, no, actually, it was because of the word count. I mean, I kind of had a word count that I was aiming for. You know, okay. I mean, it's partly word count. It's partly who, when I've solicited stories, who actually comes through with the stories in time, you know, and you don't know. And, you know, I you generally let my writers have great freedom in the length of their stories. I don't ask for specific mm-hmm. lengths. I usually say something like, you will get paid up to 8,500 words, but if it's longer, you will not get paid any more than that. But some writers, like John Langan, for example, writes novellas, and mm-hmm. that's what he mostly does. And I never know how long his novellas are going to show up. So that's kind of why 29, it was, you know, both wordage and what came in at the right time and what I took. John Langan makes me laugh because I love how he, he takes a story that would be a perfectly functional 4,000-word story and then writes the entire history of the region in which it takes place. Well, he actually did a short, a very short story for the Shirley Jackson anthology. I was yeah, shocked. one of the one of the weirder ones. I, it's interesting that you talk about the broadness because Nathan, Joe, and, and Chickadilly, your stories offer a especially good cross section of this anthology. When I was kind of reflecting on it, because they're all very different takes on the monstrous. Because between you, you cover. Yeah witches, bad mothers, and believe it or not, sweet potato sex demons. <laughs> Before we delve into those specifics, we should start, I suppose, by talking about the broader concept of monsters. I mean, to kick off, we, we all love them, right? I'm assuming we're all monster fans. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. What does the word monster evoke for you? Well, I guess when I first hear the word, I think of uh, I think of conventional monsters. I think of something, you know, out of an EC horror comic. You know, some some slouching, grotesque thing coming out of the closet. 
Uh, that's just where my mind goes right away when I hear monster. And of course, you think about it a little bit longer, the context gets broader. But but that's my first thought. Okay. The thing is, yes, to me, it's always first the monster, but then who's the, then it becomes the context of the human versus the monster and who become who's actually the monster here. You know, so, I mean, yeah. it's the relationship between what we see as an outsider slash monster and how they're treated or how we've created those monsters. Yeah. I think for me it was very much the idea that um, horrifying women, women who women who are monstrous or who are considered monstrous are much more horrifying to human beings than men who are considered monstrous. And that is because of the idea of women as, as nurturers, right? And so I wanted to take, I wanted to take the idea of this person who is supposed to nurture both within themselves and also outside themselves. Because in my culture, it's very much the role of women to not just nurture um, children, right? But they would, it's not out of place, for instance, to, to be getting married and for people to gather around you, the elders to gather around you and tell you things like, oh, you know, you have to raise your husband. You have to look after him. When you look after him, right, then you get all the things that you want. You have to make sure you don't raise your voice, that kind of stuff, right? So there's a lot mm-hmm. of there's a, there are a lot of ways in which women are supposed to manage society and societal expectations, but also are supposed to manage the emotions of men who are considered physically superior, right? And so mm-hmm. there's supposed to be different kinds of strength to that. So that when a woman acts contrary to how she's supposed to behave, the very idea of it terrifies people a lot more than, say, if a man were to be termed monstrous. You know, which is why the idea of female serial killers, for instance, has always gripped people's imaginations. It's like almost like a, a male monster and a female monster uh, of the human variety are not on equal footing. And whatever it is that makes a male monster horrid or evil is seen as twice, thrice, four times more monstrous in a woman. And so I was interested in the idea of monstrosity when, I know, as Ellen said, placed, placed in the context of, of the human and not just as an otherworldly creation or something lurking in the night or dragging its knuckles on the floor. Well, that's actually a good place to jump in. So we'll, we'll, let's, let's, let's tussle with your story first. Um, because Ellen's introduction also points out that monsters have always been something we sympathise with as well as despise or fear, you know? And I think a lot of the stories play with that. But in, in your story, particularly the special one, Empathy seems an especially kind of potent ingredient. So, so to explain very briefly, the, the special one is about Joy, a Nigerian woman who from birth is told that she is special and unique. And when she grows up, that potential for greatness seems to you know, drain away under the pressure of marriage and motherhood and expectations. And, and then she's visited by a python who may or may not mark her as someone chosen by the goddess Idamili. Is that, is that a fair synopsis? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Well, at first, I assumed the python was the monster because, you know, snakes. Um, or then I thought, oh, maybe it's the goddess. Yeah. But but it's not, is it? it it's Joy herself. And, and, and you've talked about where your story comes from. But can you tell me how do you feel about Joy 
in that story? Is she someone you empathise with or is she someone that you are repulsed by? Uh, I think it's very hard to be repulsed by any character that I write, really, simply because um, to write a fully rounded character, you must be able to show um, them as not caricatures, but as fully rounded individuals. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if I empathise with Joy as much as I relate to her um, in terms of having the pressure to be this diamond you know, and being told you're a diamond, you're a diamond, you're a diamond. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, being in this environment that despite all the pressures does nothing to transform you from ordinary coal, you know? So I suppose in that regard, I do empathize with her because she's, she's, she's been raised under the weight of expectation. And yet, you know, it's, it's as if the very people who are raising her, even though they've, They've given her all this, all the, um, all the words of, of, uh, what do you call it? What do you call those things that people, affirmation? Yes. So they've mm-hmm. given her words of affirmation, but they haven't given her any tools because they themselves don't have the tools. You know, it's very hard to give somebody things that you haven't got. So they have all these dreams for her, but they haven't given her the tools with which to, um, navigate her world. And they also haven't really, protected her have they um and so you can't be special when everything around you says that you're ordinary and unfortunately for joy um it's uh being told you're special is really hard to shift um despite all evidence to the contrary yeah i was unsure whether this is a feminist story about a woman kind of struggling against of course it's a feminist story like you have to ask come on it's me you're talking about (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but what I'm what I'm getting at is what I'm getting at is she at the same time as Joy is struggling against this patriarchal pressure. You know, her husband is demeaning her and he reduces what she her potential and stuff. At the same time, there's there's a kind of arrogance to her that it almost seems like you're satirizing people who want an easy route to fame. At one point, she's talking about you know creating divination via app. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I was wondering, is it a satire or is it a tragedy? I mean, it's both. It's it's both. It's it's it's. Um, so I was very interested when I was growing up in Greek mythology and Greek plays. And the one thing I always found fascinating was how the hero or the heroine, mostly was the hero, did not seem to recognize when hubris was knocking at the door. You know, so they would fall headlong into this trap because they just didn't see that either their actions were leading them to fulfill the prophecy you know, or Mm. that, you know, their their inaction was leading them to fulfill the prophecy. So sometimes they would try and run away from the prophecy, right, or the destiny or whatever it is, because like in the case of Oedipus, he didn't want to kill his father and marry his mother. So he ran away from it, except what does it do? It brings you all the way back to where it is you're supposed to be. So there is that satire in there, but it is also a tragedy in that she doesn't see... You know, she sees certain things. She sees the weaknesses of society. She sees the way that she's been hard done by. But she doesn't see how she's the thing that they should be afraid of. Because she feels like she's been, you know, she's been deprived of a certain way of living. And so she's she's better than everybody else. She's more special than everybody else. And, you know, and also it's, it's, it's worthy of note that she spends her time waiting who the hell waits for greatness? Do you know what I mean? Like, get off your bum and do some work, you 
lazy bum. <laughs> you know, like just do something. But she doesn't do anything. She's swept along on this tide of like, you know, of 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 expectation and she just waits. She waits. Everything has to happen to her. You know, like how they talk about bright kids, right? Like she's a bright kid. So things that come easy to bright kids, they'll excel at. But if they meet a bit of difficulty, then they fall to pieces because everything has come so easily to them before. So she's very much that kind of person, you know, and I suppose that's what leads her to acting in the way that she does eventually okay. because well, she didn't act all the while. And so when it came down to it and she had to do something, what she did was then something that shook the world and tore it in two. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Well, I feel a bit better now for not entirely getting behind her. <laughs> um, it, it was it, it was a refreshing story to read because, as I've said a million times on this show already, we, we need new lore in the mainstream horror world. We need new mythologies, new cultural approaches to what's frightening. And another story that I absolutely loved is is it Indra Pramit Das? Here comes your man. Yeah. Um, which yes. deals with this kind of normalised misogyny in Bengali culture, and it, it uses the figure of the boot, which is this um, demon with backwards-facing feet. And, and that, to be honest, for me, was the most singularly frightening story in the <laughs> anthology. It, um, did you, Ellen, did you have that kind of cross-cultural pollination thing in mind? Did you want more culturally diverse monsters when you put together this collection? I did, I did but I, and I didn't get as many as I should have or would have liked. You know, I mean, I got a handful in it. In every anthology I try, you know, you try to contact more people and more writers who you come to know. And sometimes you are able to find, get them to write stories for you. Sometimes you can't, and sometimes you can't mm-hmm. even contact them, you know? So yes, I mean, I did try not hard enough, but I, I did get a handful of, of you guys, <laughs> of people, um, who wrote, who write from different cultural points of view. Mm. And I do think it's important. Well, I think it's really important. I've been clamoring for it just because the kind of stranglehold that, that white Western voices have on horror and lore and, and all that kind of thing. It, I, I'm getting quite frustrated by it. I know I've spoke to Stephen Graham Jones about this as well, about his attempts to, as he put it, take Jason to the reservation. Well, which, I just want to say something about Stephen Graham Jones, which is really interesting. I mean, I've been reading him for a long time, and I've been publishing him for a long time. I never, I never saw his protagonist as as indigenous. I mean, they, most of them until the last few years, uh-huh. he never made it overt. And I guess I asked him about it. And I said, you know, these all your characters, none of them seem particularly, you know, of your background. And he said, well, I always think of them that way. Uh-huh. You know, so it's just that my perception was that they're, and not that they're white, but that they're, I don't know, I just never thought of them as, yes, being from the reservation. Uh-huh. And he, of course, from his point of view, yes, they all might have been or were. And it's, as I said, it's only in the last, his novel, his most recent novels, and actually more of his stories, that he's actually bringing that out more overtly. Mm. That, that's probably a conversation for a different podcast, but about whether or not someone, you know, should be required to mark the difference of their protagonist it, 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 that yeah that's a, a whole another avenue that would need a smarter man than me to to unpick but um yeah. nathan joe i've kind of made you wait quite a long time to speak i apologize um it strikes me as your stories are are also full of a very specific local flavor nathan i know you live in north carolina um yeah and I describe your story, Three Mothers Mountain, as a backwoods brother's grim. 
And I used a phrase, I took a gamble on this. I said an Appalachian monkey's paw. Forgive my absolute ignorance. Are the Carolinas considered Appalachian? <laughs> yes, they are. Western they are. Carolinas, that, yeah. that, that's a relief. I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure. They are, yeah. And I, I, I love those phrases. I enjoyed them. Yeah, I was I was sitting on my holiday with an hour, and I thought I'm going to do my best here to actually come up with some proper, proper reviews that will that will please people rather than just going, oh, good. I, I, I really enjoyed Three Mothers Mountain. I enjoy that you take a really strong fairy tale approach in the story. Um, very generic question, I suppose, but can you talk a little bit about where the idea for the story comes from and and how you married that fairy tale tradition with the specific local flavor? Uh, well, it wasn't so much a conscious choice to do that. It was sort of organic. Um, I, I don't really recall how, you know, the, the, where the first ideas, the story, uh, came from, uh, except that, you know, I grew up, I have a little brother and, uh, and, uh, and so I think about that dynamic a lot when I think of little boys and, you know, it's it, a, a kind of, a, 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 I guess an obsession of mine over several stories are the idea of, uh, a, a kind of a fractured family. And the sort of the ways that, you know, kind of dark things can seep into where, you know, the absence of a parent might be, or if someone is not getting the sufficient love that they need, that they'll kind of reach for it in, uh, in sinister places sometimes without realizing it. And, uh, and so it just, it just kind of came from that soup, you know, and, uh, and the idea of, a of it being a sort of fairy tale vibe is, uh, you know, in a lot of places, uh, and the Appalachians are certainly not unique in this, uh, the idea, you know, folklore still kind of exists. People still have these sort of folkloric superstitions or thoughts, whether they're even, you know, consciously acknowledged. And so just the idea of, of having a sort of world in which, uh, in which witches will come down a mountain every year and have a little, uh, sort of like a little flea market, kind of like uh, making it to sort of a a standard part of their life was a very appealing thing for me. And yeah, and I think that's, you know, it just kind of grew out of that. And so whatever sort of fairy tale uh, energy it has it just mm-hmm. naturally comes from wedding the, the, the supernatural with the mundane. Well, that, that's, that, that's something that you do in, in a lot of your stories. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, this, your collection, North American late monsters, um, which I read, Years ago, when I was backpacking around Canada, I, I've, I'm yet to catch up with wounds. I apologise, but outrageous! Um, like in in those stories, you, you <laughs> often take werewolves and vampires and these kind of Lovecraftian entities sometimes, and you collapse them into the contemporary. And for you, the supernatural seems to go hand in hand with a very mundane nightmare world. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, it's fair to say, especially in the in those earlier stories and in in. Yeah, and a lot of the stories, I think that's accurate. I think, uh, I think you know, what's really interesting to me is is just exploring the way the supernatural, you know, kind of illuminates the ordinary in our lives, and uh, and uh, you know, in the way we'll kind of we, we 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 might brush up against something either terrifying or or numinous in some way, and I think. As with most extraordinary things, it just becomes part of the everyday, everyday matter to us, mm-hmm. and we kind of uh, we kind of you know we we uh, we 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 leech out the uh, the uh, whatever kind of momentous or awesome power it might have until it becomes no no different than a trip to the grocery store or mm-hmm. you know seeing a stranger on the street, and uh, I just think that I just. 
I think that's kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's a lovely bit in in Three Mothers Mountain where the one one of the kids see they go up to the witch's cabin and they see the radio and they remark on how strange it is to think of a witch listening to popular modern music, and and that felt to me like the nucleus of of exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, and in, in some ways, Three Mothers Mountain is is an inversion of that idea because. When you're very young, I think the entire world seems a little bit more magical and more charged with supernatural energy than it probably is. Uh, and especially when your home life is kind of collapsing around you and your parents are acting in ways that uh, that are alien to your understanding of of, of who they are, uh, that can seem very much like a, like a supernatural visitation of mm-hmm. a sort. And so I think, um, I think, especially for kids, I think that kind of energy is supercharged. And uh, yeah, I think that's it's just a it's it's a it's a sort of flip of the coin from the other kinds of stories that I wrote, in which it was, in which it was kind of backgrounded into the mundane. And 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 then we come to you, Joe, and Sweet Potato, and, and I'm not even sure where to begin with this, to be honest, because it's a story <laughs> about a lonely man who takes up gardening. <laughs> And the things he does with his neighbor's corpse, but it also has this kind of creepy merging with this other <laughs> strand of succubi and things that we bring back from our nightmares. And, and we've spoken before about your, shall we say, idiosyncratic imagination. And I, 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 I think I called that episode right, like everyone that you know is dead. But even for you, this is an outlandish idea. So over to you, Joe. Tell us about Sweet Potato. <laughs> well, it's about a sweet potato. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I come from an agrarian culture. The East Texas is not like what people think of Texas. It's probably more like North Carolina without the mountains. It's um, got lots of trees and water. Really, it's more like Louisiana. And uh, the culture is a mixture of Southern and some Cajun and uh, certainly uh you, you know, more and more Hispanic culture, and it's, it's just a different mixture. And so when I was uh, younger, many years ago, my wife and I had a, a subsistence farm and a goat dairy. And one of the things that collapsed that whole thing and ruined it was I decided I was going to grow some sweet potatoes. And uh, I had this giant... Uh, it's acreage that I had rented and that I put out the sweet potatoes, which I plowed with a mule, by the way, and broke the ground up and put them out. And it was so hot that year and there was no rain. Uh, you know, it was just all these little suffering vines, you know, turning black. And uh, that sort of ended my agrarian career after having been quite successful at it for a few years. And I've always had a vengeance against the sweet potato. I not only eat them, but I knew someday I was going to write a sweet potato story. So finally, I, I, I came back to the sweet potato. Uh, but then this one, I just had kind of a surrealist viewpoint. And uh, I wanted to write about a succubus, but I wanted to write it from an angle that was unexpected, but at least in my little brain made sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you hate sweet potatoes. <laughs> well, I actually like to eat them, but I, I, owe, I owe them some vengeance because, uh, you know, of that uh, moment <laughs> in my career that was thwarted. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's a story that on the surface, if you would describe it to anybody, it sounds like a comedy. And and, and I'm sure there are intentional <laughs> comedic aspects yeah. in there, but it does genuinely morph into horror, doesn't it? 
Well, you know, to me, Robert Locke, I, I knew a little bit, and I, I'm sure Ellen did too. And and Bob always told me, he said that, you know, horror and humor are just flip sides of the same coin. And they are. And I've always felt the humor intensifies the horror. And I also wanted to answer questions, but I also wanted to leave some things unanswered so that mm-hmm. when you got through, you felt this feeling of uh, not confusion, but sort of a uh, ambiguity about what was going on as well as being able to understand the basic thrust of the story. But uh, I, I think I got a lot of that from uh, Robert Block and the surrealism and stuff I actually got from uh, reading comics with people by people like Steranko and, and all of that during the 60s and the 70s. There was a big trend towards that. And I think there's always been a vein of that in a lot of my work. But I've got a lot of veins out there, you know, in, in mm-hmm. a lot of different directions. Sometimes I write more traditionally, sometimes more satirically, sometimes more surrealistic. Uh, so to me, this one kind of combined a lot of those things, and I had a lot of fun with it. It's a lot of fun to read. The, the Robert Block comparison is interesting, because I, I was just trying to think about what I've read of, of Robert Block's. And the, the story about the, the man whose shadow is trying to kill him. Yeah, I've actually written a shadow story myself, and I'm sure I owe that to Bob. Right. Well, that, yeah, I'm trying to think that story kind of has a vibe of sweet potato when I think about it, the horrific absurdity of it, I suppose. I've made this recommendation on this show before, and Chickadilly, you may be familiar because you're um, probably more open to British TV than the other guys, but have any of you seen The League of Gentlemen? Oh, yeah. No, I have not. Joe... I think it's of a all the weird people, show. very surreal. Yeah, and I think of all the people I can think of, Joe, you get the biggest kick out of it. It's a British show um, set in a town. Ta- it's actually filmed in my hometown, which tells you quite a lot about my hometown. <laughs> it's like a sort of like about this really odd village where the butcher is a cannibal, and the the, the, the couple in, who run the shop on the hill are incestuous <laughs> brother and sister, and they've got like a mutant child in the attic, and it just gets weirder from there. And I think sweet potato could fit seamlessly into the the the, uh, the vibe of that show. Actually, you're <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> I'll take you, you can get I'll it on Netflix. Yeah, I, I honestly, it's such a good show. I love it. But I, I, when I said the horror of of sweet potato, this is got a weird thing to admit in it, right? But when I was reading these stories, because I monsters are kind of fun. I don't I don't think monsters are scary in the way that necessarily psychopaths or or demons, or, or things like that. Monsters are quite fun horror. Yes, but those are monsters too. Demons and psychopaths are definitely yeah, monsters. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I need yeah. to define my terms better. But <laughs> I sort of mean, the idea of the, of the creature feature and stuff like that, I felt safe reading these stories because that kind of horror doesn't disturb me. You know, it's fun. Oh no, we failed. What do you mean it doesn't disturb you? It's supposed to disturb you. It's supposed to keep you up at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had the most fun reading these stories, but actually it was Joe's that came the closest to genuinely making me feel properly uneasy because I've got this weird thing about dreams. Yeah, I watched Freddy Krueger when I was far too young and I still think uh... the idea of something attacking in your dreams is genuinely disturbing. Yeah. Um, and there's this creepy line you use, Joe, because this guy is dreaming and he, he's basically sleeping his life away because he's pissed off. And then he uses this line where he says... He wakes from a, from a nightmare and he says, it had all been a dream, perhaps a dream within a dream, or had the shadow found a mouse hole? And this idea that something had come back with him from his dreams, just, 
I was like, oh, this yeah. is on easy ground. I don't like this. Well, you know, that, that that's actually tied to the way I write stories because a large percentage of my stories come from dreams. I was actually writing a different one for Ellen, but it got too long and it, it was a sequel to a, I, I did an Auguste Dupin story for an anthology and I was doing a, another one and uh, it got too long. And uh, I've been having a lot of weird dreams actually because of that story. But nearly all of my stories somewhat come back from dream, come from dreams. And I always think that when I write that those dreams came back with me and not in the normal sense. But I mean, I, I, I'm just using this as metaphorically, of course, but as something that is unique to the dream world. And I'm trying to put that on the page. And uh, dreams to me are probably my major source of, of nearly all the material I have. That makes sense because there's a kind of dream logic to a lot of these stories, I suppose. So that right. that does make sense. It was a weird feeling to be re- reading a story that is so obviously comical in parts and find it so disturbing. It's like you tapped into a, the most specific nerve in my brain that I just don't like being pushed. <laughs> anything, anything to do with dreams. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to have pushed it. Yeah, very much so. I um, Right, so I've already put my foot wrong by saying they didn't disturb me, right? That isn't, that is not a criticism. I'm sick of being disturbed. I've been a really dark fiction. No, I was just joking. <laughs> it, 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 it's, nice to, it's nice to be entertained. But as you quite rightly said, Helen, demons, psychopaths, they're all monsters, right? So to take this conversation back a bit, we've had witches, we've had succubi, we've had bad mothers. When you were commissioning stories... Did you have a very clear idea on what your boundaries were in terms of what you would no. consider monstrous? No, rarely. I mean, I rarely do with any of my anthologies. So no, um, you know, I, I was open to what the writers would come up with. And that was, you know, that's always important to me to let them. Yeah. I mean, obviously if there was something that came in that just seemed, well, that's not scary, monstrous, disturbing or whatever, I would probably have turned it down, mm-hmm. but I uh, no, it was a pretty broad theme, so, which was intentional. So, I mean, the, the, the thing I found fascinating was how few tropes were being used. Um, even Nathan, who, who deals with witches, this is not in any way the, the typical way. I'm, I'm, no, not, I'm not, not even sure the witches are the monsters, you know, at all in that story. Um, so, yeah, there, there, right. there were very few tropes. I mean, we had, we had a couple of vampires, but they were very different to the, to the, to the norm. Um, the, the one I liked was um, Norman Partridge's, where it's kind of the the various monsters from from film and folklore coming together on, on an island. But even that's kind of slightly meta and, and, and taking things on in a different way. Were, were you surprised by how new a lot of the, 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 the monstrosities were? Oh, yes. I was delighted by them. Um, I mean, I liked uh, just one example, Gary Kilworth's one. Of, also, I mean, I have two stories about islands, one by Norman Partridge and one mm-hmm. by Gary Kilworth. And his was called Flaming Teeth, I think. Oh, yeah, it's a great story. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's the typical jerks on it. <laughs> I mean, the, the people who are who are the main characters, you, feel, you, you can empathize with them, but they're also jerks. You know, or the jerks first, and then you start empathizing. See what's going on. Uh oh, they're in trouble. You know, these people who are vacationing an island, and then, uh, you know, they're they're hyper privileged, and then something out of the ordinary comes and gets them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to me, that the last line of that is really chilling. Or well, the last few lines are like utterly chilling. 
Um, and that to me makes that story. Although I found the whole thing interesting. I don't know who else has read it, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. And then there, Joyce Carol Oates has, you know, yes, a sociopath um, as a protagonist and it's based on a true story about the so-called father of gynecology, mm-hmm. basically, you know, tortured, mostly slaves, but you know, all kinds of people and usually women um, and he, you know, this is based on a real person and that was, and he's human, but he's, he's one of the worst monsters in the book. Mm, that's a truly awful story. It was quite difficult to read in parts, that story. Yeah. Joyce told me what she wanted to write about. And I said, we have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you have to really be careful how you're going to approach it. You know, she was aware of that too. We wanted to be sensitive to the, the plot line, uh, you know, to who the victims mm-hmm. were. And I think she did a good job. You know, the guy's a monster. And he thinks he's not. It's his journal, mm. you know. And actually, there was more to the story, but she cut it. We had her cut. I had a we, she, we both agreed she should cut it out. It was what he, his history before he got to the plantation. Right. And, you know, we both agreed that it was unnecessary, that it was too long. It just didn't need, it didn't need that at all. Um, I wonder if she's going to make that into a novel. Well, I'm, I'm hoping, praying and, and begging to get Joyce on the podcast because who doesn't want to speak to Joyce Carol Oates, you know? And um, yeah, I, I need to speak to her about that story because it's a real sobering moment in the collection because it, the, the collection's kind of romping along with vampires and, you know, Stephen Graham Jones's kind of matrioshka dolls of monsters one inside the other. And then, and then all of a sudden, boom, you come up against that story. And, and I take yeah. it back, that is disturbing. On a on a very different level than most of these tales, it yeah, it was quite shocking. It, it, yeah. it, it sobered up my holiday read for half an hour. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> you you need the salt and the pepper in these things. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the island though, because there's one story by Siobhan Carroll, and for the life of me, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Shyla? It's the name of an island. Well, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. It's Irish, I think. So with Irish spelling, you have no idea what it how you I'll, pronounce it. But Siobhan, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Someone will correct me, no doubt. For years, I thought Siobhan was sort of Siobhan. I had no idea it was pronounced the way it is, Siobhan. Well, I, I used to live in Scotland for a while, so I've got a bit of an insider track on this. I mean, because I think, um, isn't, um, oh God, uh, actor Peter, Peter, made, <laughs> oh God, famous actor. I don't know. Uh, oh, Oh my God, I can't believe, um, this is a senior moment. I'd help you, but I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking Peter Fonda, but no, much older. Peter um, O'Toole, duh. Yeah, Peter O'Toole is oh. ma- is mar- was married to the name Siobhan something, rather, and I always thought it was Siobhan. I mean, that's how I, I presumed it was pronounced. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hijack this into pronunciation, but <laughs> I have no idea how... Island is pronounced. <laughs> you know? I, I, I think with my sort of touches of, of Gaelic exposure in the past, I think it's Shola, but people can correct me. Anyway, in it, she writes, quote, Where monsters were concerned, humans had misread the warning. Here be monsters didn't mean here no humans tread, but here you already are. Your technology already tangling the waters, your influence already spreading across a godless globe. And I highlighted that right away because... You know, the Here Be Monsters thing goes back into time immemorial. Monsters mm-hmm. inhabit the edgelands. They inhabit the, you know, the parts of the map that aren't, aren't yet mapped. And I wondered, if we start with you, Nathan, I suppose, how, 
how do you think monsters work in our newly kind of globalized world? Are they being extinguished in the imagination or are they more important than ever? Uh, I think I, I think they're I, don't, I wouldn't venture to say more important. I think they've always been important and always will be. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're how we understand, I think, uh, what's wrong inside of us. And, you know, I think I, and I, I love that quote because it, 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 it really kind of underscores that notion that they come with us. You know, they're not things that we encounter, they're things that we, that we bring to places, mm-hmm. uh, wherever, wherever we are, mm-hmm. we're going to be seeding the ground with our monsters. Yeah. No, I like that, and I love Siobhan's quote. I mean, I think that really kind of nails it. That I've yeah, always, we're the monsters. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always thought that uh, you know there are different kinds of monsters. Like a lot of them, I read are just actually I find entertaining. They're just you know they're mm-hmm. kind of uh, scary in a way that you're controlled. The ones that and I, I've written all kinds, and the kinds that bother me most, the mo- kind of bother me most to write about are the kind of encounter are the very realistic, you know, sociopaths, psychopaths, uh, the, um, the people who do unexpected things too, you know, somebody who just suddenly walks into a school with a gun and kills a bunch of kids. Those to me are the real monsters that are, that frighten me the most because they all come from, uh, the id, you know, that's, uh, something that we all have. There's some place in there where you can't write about any of these things unless you understand them on some level, which tells you something about humans in general. We all have a dark place and we all recognize it. And uh, that doesn't mean that it's uncontrollable for all of us, but it means that we know that we all have that same well of wet, gooey darkness. And I think that Mm -hmm. monsters help that. And some of those like, you know, the Frankenstein monster or werewolf or so on, at least in modern culture, I think I find them more fun or humorous or, uh, you know, they can be scary, but in a very comfortable way. But the other kind, which, I, as I've said, I've written about all kinds of versions of them. Those are the ones that bother me because they're real. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I I wonder whether the increased sight, you know, we've got like way more sightings of Bigfoot than ever before and stuff. And I mean, I, I'm a bit of a, I so want Bigfoot to be real, honestly, of all of them. If I understand the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist, I understand there's probably no Mothman. I get it all. I really want this to be a Bigfoot, really badly. I want, I, I want there to be, but I don't think there is. You know, what's weird is my daughter was on a show called uh, Finding Bigfoot, and she was Did like she? one of the... Uh, well, she no, she didn't, and because she doesn't believe in Bigfoot either, and they didn't find Bigfoot. But she was asked to be on the show because she's a singer and somebody on that was really, and she was recording at John Carter, the Johnny Cash cabin. And so they were looking in that area. So they went out and had her go out and sing to Bigfoot. It was kind of funny. But the thing is, is I don't know that there are any more Bigfoot sightings. I think that it's just become an industry as well. And we have the internet now and we have all of these, you know, outlets that are trying to entertain people with so-called reality shows. Um, I want to believe in Bigfoot. My cousin, Jimmy Lansdale, is a famous Bigfoot hunter, believe it or not. And uh, he had a show called Killing Bigfoot and Killing Bigfoot and Finding Bigfoot hated each other. And my take on it was don't worry about Bigfoot getting killed because he ain't there. So, uh, you know, I, I think I think that it was kind of a weird rivalry in my view. But from theirs, it was serious. 
Well, I'm very much on finding Bigfoot's side over killing Bigfoot. But you might be right about there not being more sightings, but the industry is definitely there. And that, to go back to what we're talking about, this globalised world, I sometimes wonder whether that industry exists because we're so desperate for there still to be mystery. Yeah. Because we've mapped it all or we feel that we've mapped it all. And, you know, we're just we're, we're yeah. pressing back at, the, at the, 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 the limits of the frontier that aren't there anymore. It's a good point. But then you find there are more and more things dredged up from the deep, deep ocean mm-hmm. that are monstrous to me. They, you know, really weird-looking worms. And didn't they just didn't they just uncover this forest in inside a cave in in China? Didn't they just uncover this forest that was underground? So- yeah, I saw that. That was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first thought was Pellucidor. <laughs> I thought Burroughs was right. There is an inside world. Yeah. 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 My first thought is always, we've seen the thing. Let's let's not mess with the thing that's not been exposed for a thousand years. The thing is also like in, in places like that and like in the ocean where we keep finding all this weird stuff, right? There is the, the possibility of us not having any sort of immunity to tiny microscopic monsters, you know, little organisms that go in there and bring out the wet, gooey evil, like Joe said. You know, there's yeah. that bit of it. You know, there's forget about Bigfoot. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Neil. Forget about Bigfoot. Okay, Bigfoot. You know, <laughs> okay. that's not scary to me. That's not, <laughs> I hate to I hate to do this to you, but that's not scary to me. What is scary to me, I think, is the idea of despite free will. Despite, you know, we're all just walking around in meat suits and we are really just our brains. Having something breach that last vestige of yourself, your very essence, something small and innocuous and invisible that just goes in there and just wrecks you and turns you into this thing. That is my, you know, that is my fear, I think, where you're no longer yourself. So every single thing that you consider that makes up, you know, Ellen or Neil or Nathan or Joe, Mm -hmm. just gets stripped, not just stripped, but also changed. Mm -hmm. You know, you're completely unfathomable Mm -hmm. to anybody that knows you. That is freaking scary. I'm sorry, but that is scary because what can you do in that, you know, under that kind of influence, you know? I've I've known people with that had you know, certain drugs and things that were that did that exactly to them. It's like you you go, who is this person? You know, they're 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 using some yeah. sort of uh, substance yeah. that's just changed their personality and altered who they are and what they think about and what they would have done normally. Uh, so to me, that's what that's also frightening. And you know, they have that those organisms that get in and just eat you from the inside out. Yeah. Oh. Ugh. Things like that are frightening, but I find I love I love the idea of Bigfoot, but I just love that for the mystery. But the other is for the horror. Yeah, I get that. It's like that thing that can, you said this this fungus that controls the ants. Have you heard of that? Yes, it's, it's like oh a my worm gosh, thing. Yes, that, la- that- yes, it changes the behavior of the ant so that basically, whenever it gets to a higher organism and that organism ingests it, then it can then control the higher organ. It's it's creepy. That's what it is. Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> but also, like, don't we write monsters because deep down inside we just want to believe. I mean, you're saying you don't believe it's anthropologically possible to have the big to have Bigfoot, but deep down inside where there's a little spark, you still want to believe, don't you? 
But I don't know if I'd want to believe. No, because, well, if they were real, it would be too scary. (laughs) I don't know. You've got bears and mountain lions. I think you've got enough to worry about already. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I read ghost stories. I love ghost stories. I don't believe in an afterlife. I'm an atheist. Me too. And I don't, I don't know how, if I actually saw a ghost, I think it would totally screw me up because then that does mean something. I yeah. don't know why. Well, you know, <laughs> what's an interesting yeah. thing about ghosts that, that is, is that they, they found out a long time ago that sometimes, you know, we, the eye sends a message to the brain, but sometimes the brain sends a message to the eye, meaning that you do see things. But uh, I, I noticed that sometimes in the past, when I would be driving for long times and I was really tired, I would imagine somebody running out across the road in front of me or a dog running. And then I got to where I would see faceless men walking toward me on the right side of the road. And they would just walk that and they weren't wow. scary at all, but it was just because I knew it was my subconscious, but it was telling me, you know, you might need a cup of coffee or a nap. And uh, so, yeah, right. yeah. Cause so I do think people can see those things, but I don't think it, necessarily proves the supernatural um you know i, I right i mean I have, I've, I've had i see things mm-hmm. crawl across the trees early in the morning and at night and i'm not kidding when i'm when i first wake up i can go out and my imagination sees that now why it does and what that tells me about my poor little brain i can't tell you but i never think oh that's mm-hmm. supernatural I, that never even occurs to me i know it's me doing it i know it's that brain sending that message to the eye you know Joe, you've got faceless men and things crawling through the trees in your garden. Where do you live, Skinwalker Ranch? I mean, like that is, <laughs> and and it's funny too because like like you and Ellen, I'm an atheist as well. You know, I don't I don't believe in an afterlife, and I don't believe in gods and things like that. But I love to read ghost stories, and because I I can create that universe as a writer or as a reader uh-huh. into which I can live. I'm, mm-hmm. It's but it doesn't mean I that I live in it in the real world, but it's just like when I used to read Edgar right. Burroughs, I believed in Pellucidor. I believed there was a, a center of the world uh, earth where it was hollow and all the, until I put the book down and then I could go back and pick mm-hmm. it up. Sure, That's the best thing to me about horror or, or actually any fiction that the suspension of disbelief and it's not even just genre fiction. It's any fiction. You, if you're involved enough in the story, that story is real to you while you're reading it. And that's all that counts. Yeah, Nathan, you you've remained very quiet during that. Is that because you're just far more rational than us, or if you don't mind me asking, what's your belief structure when it comes to monsters? Well, I I, I think of myself as an agnostic. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe in I don't believe in ghosts or monsters necessarily. I don't believe in uh, you know uh, an organizing force guiding everything. Um, but I I I do also I think like you kind of crave the mystery. Um, and, uh, and I like unanswered questions Mm -hmm. and, um, I like having my assumptions turned over and I'm encouraged. Well, I, a better way to say it is I think I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable activating to the idea that I don't know I anything at all. Um, especially as a, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't replicate even by paraphrasing, you know, in any detail. But we, when science are talking about parallel universes, about uh, the fact that uh, you know time uh, is, is on a loop, these kinds of these kinds of ideas are are uh, or not even a loop, but like a, is is a static thing, and we only perceive it uh, as being something that we is as sequential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every time I read something about that, I just think I don't know anything. 
I don't know anything at all. And what hubris to, uh, to even pretend that I might. And I find that really satisfying. You know that, that uh, I, I, you, you brought up something that had, and, I, and I thought of something I just read. Uh, oh, no, I was thinking about Vonnegut. You know, if you read Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, in that time is not yeah. even on a loop, is that all time exists mm-hmm. simultaneously. You know, surprise me. And, and I'll be happy to be surprised because there's lots that I don't know. And, and, but to me, once you start talking about physics, you're not talking about supernatural. You're talking about something else. And I expect to be confused there. And in fact, I think a lot of the things that we don't understand or that we uh, attribute to ghosts or whatever is stuff that we really don't understand yet and maybe never will. And uh, I think that's what's fascinating yeah. to me because you can you can understand that life has mysteries without having to uh, think that you know nothing. You know nothing in the broader sense, mm-hmm. but in you you know. And also, I, I just think that it there are certain things that are more logical to believe, and some that aren't. Doesn't mean you're necessarily right, but I don't think Bigfoot's out there. And I think as time goes, I believed in Bigfoot when I was younger. And then as time went on and I, I went on Bigfoot hunts and, you know, they weren't hunting to kill. They were just hunting to find. And I went with people that were supposedly in. And the more I did all that stuff, the more I felt like, yeah, but ain't nothing out there. I feel really sorry for Neil at this point, because I feel like everybody is just kind of killed his fantasy to find Bigfoot now. We've all pissed on oh, Bigfoot. No, my my belief stands strong to Hillary. Don't <laughs> worry. Know. Yeah, I've, I've been I've been battered for, for a decade about this. My friends think I'm a lunatic, but I yeah, uh, I think we need to introduce you to my cousin Jimmy and the Bigfoot group. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. It's interesting though when you when you said about about the idea that the supernatural may just be things we don't understand yet. To take it back to monsters, things like, um, you know, the gorilla wasn't formally identified until the Edwardian period. And well, by Europeans, <laughs> they knew it was there. I mean, that's a different thing. By the same token, indigenous populations claim to have seen all kinds of things, you know, and it was. But it's, it, that's, that's what I'm getting at. That's exactly what I'm getting at. It's, it's the hubris of, of Western man. Exactly why I said, come to Nigeria with me and all of this stuff will be sorted in like three days. Just give me three days <laughs> and you know and you know for sure whether you believe or not because I will be taking you to a whole new terrain, whole new possibility, whole new lore, whole new everything. Because right now what you're dealing with is you're being, you're jaded by the familiarity of your own cultures, No. You are exactly right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never been to Africa, and it's, it's very high on my aims for the next few years of my life. I just want to take people there and just leave them in the, and just leave them in the bushes. Yeah, and just leave them in the bushes, and then shout reparations, and then run away. No, no, nah. <laughs> you might like East Texas like that too. I, I could take you out to the dark woods and let you loose out in the swamps, and you and the gators and the bobcats and the you know, the wild hogs. <laughs> no! You, you love it. You love it. <laughs> this is becoming a whole different podcast where yeah. I just go to scary parts of the world and get abandoned in the woods. I know. <laughs> now we are threatening each other with each other's surroundings. Well, that brings me back to my, one of my last questions, I suppose. What are our favourite monsters? If you all had to pick one monster that is your favourite, from legend, from folklore, from film, from fiction, whatever, what is... What is your one monster that is the emblem for you of monstrosity? Hannibal Lecter. Really? Oh, I love Hannibal Lecter. 
yeah, yeah. Until they, until Thomas Harris screwed him up in the last novel. But yeah, <laughs> I don't want to know his background. I don't know, want to know his childhood. Thank you. <laughs> but no, he, he was a brilliant, he was like a perfect monster in the first two novels. Well, in, in that he's alluring as well, like all the best monsters. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Chickadilly? I don't, I mean, right now, to be honest, is that, you know, like how, I don't think I have a particular monster, just like I don't have any favorite, anything, color, food, whatever. But I think one of the things that really, really scares me, like I said, is something just taking me over. So I don't really like the idea of possession or mm-hmm. any sort of parasite. control by any parasite. microorganism or parasite. Exactly. I don't like any of that. Anytime they are doing any of those excavations and they're like, oh, look, we found this ancient Egyptian body. <laughs> And look, he's in a suit from like close it back, close it back. Yeah, they're like, Oh, we've dug into yeah. the Alaskan ice and we found we found this this virus that existed. Put it back in the ice, you know, put it back, walk away. I think for me it's the shapeshifter because that in many ways is what Hannibal Lecter is. And it's people, it's it's people, normal people that somehow have some difference inside of them that that can take over, and that goes into the more traditional uh, werewolves or you know uh, shapeshifters of any nature, because I and I think in in a sense possession mm-hmm. is shapeshifting because it's changing that person. So to me, anything that alters the the more human uh, or what we think of as the more human aspects, then that I think that's what's disturbing to me. Yeah, well, I think mine is a, a cousin to Joe's answer, uh, the werewolf to me. The werewolf is yep. the ultimate expression of our own you know, interior violence, darkness, animalistic self coming to the fore, you know, whether it's the Incredible Hulk or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right. you know, they're all werewolf stories. Right, mm-hmm. and that's exactly right. That's what yeah. I was saying. I agree with you 100%, yeah. So, so we've all kind of agreed there in a way. You, you've all kind of said... You know, humanity that is that is not humanity that contains some kind of darkness. Because I suppose that's what Hannibal Lecter is like. You said Joe is the ultimate shapeshifter. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mine's Freddy Krueger. That's the man. Who, that's what scares me the most. <laughs> yeah, but also Freddy Krueger used to go into people's dreams and money. It's the same thing. It's sort of not being in control because when you are asleep, you're not in control of your body. Okay, mm-hmm. you're all mind. Your everything is open in your mind, and so he goes into your dreams and he manipulates events, places, people within the dreams with the aim of affecting the outcome of the person in the real world. So it's interesting that a bunch of writers who like to control characters and what they do and say do not themselves want to be controlled in any shape or form. (laughs) That's That's the analysis I wish I'd made, but yeah, that's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, uh-huh. I, feel, I feel I feel we've reached a kind of thesis together on, on this. I don't know quite what it is yet, but we've reached some kind of conclusion. <laughs> we've talked for over an hour now, and I don't want to presume on your time too much. If you don't mind, one thing my listeners do absolutely love is book recommendations. So before we finish, it'd be great if you could each recommend a book for my listeners briefly, whether it's about monsters or otherwise, uh, and tell us why that's the book you think they should read. Do you want to start, Nathan? Uh, sure. Uh, the book I was going to recommend today, am going to recommend today, is a collective short stories that came out uh, several years ago now. It's called The Wilds by Julia Elliott. Um, it is not necessarily uh, a collection about monsters or, or, or horror, but it's uh, 
it's really a dense kind of Southern Gothic, very, uh, you know, uh, kudzu, snails, uh, just, uh, you know, religion, uh, beautiful, ornate prose. Uh, one of my favorite books ever. Great. That will go in the show notes. I will definitely check it out. That sounds... I always like when I get a recommendation I haven't heard of before because, well, it's nice to know about new books. So, yeah, thank you for that. Chickadilly, what about you? Ooh, um, this is really hard, again, because I don't have favourites. But I think at <laughs> the tip of my tongue, um, probably Om Shadow by Priya Sharma which is just, oh, I can't even describe what that book does to me. But the setting of it I found really interesting because it is really dark, really coastal and watery. And there are secrets in the family. I just, oh, I love Priya Sharma so much, so much. Um, and then there is yes. Sundial yeah. by Katriona Ward, which I, I read uh-huh. recently and loved. It's full of twists yeah. and turns and you never quite settle into who the villain is supposed to be until the very end i thought i thought that was very interesting so i think the both of them uh there's also another book by oh ek lee called cunning women oh it's about it's about magic and witches uh and it's it's just so beautifully rendered beautiful so om shadow priya sharma uh sundai by katriana ward and cunning women by ek lee Amazing. My only exposure to Priya Sharma is via your anthologies, Ellen, and I've loved everything I've read, but I, I, I need to read Orm Shadow because... Yeah, I acquired it for tour.com. I love it. I love it. It's an amazing novella. It's terrific. It's very much family. It's just a totally dysfunctional family and uh-huh. and a wee bit of magic. It's barely genre, but it is, you know. Um, you can take it any way you want, the ending. Um, yeah. I like to take it as genre, so. I will check it out. Over to you, Joe. What's your rec? Well, I haven't been reading anything of that nature. I I, I read uh, Hemingway's Widow by Timothy Christian, which was about Mary Hemingway, Hemingway's last uh, wife. And it was about her career and how they met. And, and it had a lot of interesting new material about Hemingway that I hadn't read before. And, um, you know, like him or hate him, I, I think he's, uh, you know, one of the most important writers that ever wrote a line especially in the 20th century. Um, and then I've been reading, I, I, after that, I read, uh, well, I, I read on Boxing by Joyce Carol Oates because I'm a boxing fan. And then I read a book on uh, called In This Corner about boxers. And currently I'm reading uh, The Writer's Crusade, which by Tom Rossum, which is about Kurt Vonnegut and all the different uh, angles that led to the writing of Slaughterhouse-Five, which is one of my favorite novels. Okay, thank you. I didn't know Joyce Carol Oates had written a thing about boxers. I um, oh yeah, I'll, I'll look it up. She knows her stuff. She knows her stuff. Yeah, I mean, she knows. Yeah. She seems to know stuff on everything. I don't know if she has time to do the research and, and write everything she <laughs> writes. I've got her new one coming to me right now, um, Babysitter, which sounds mm. brilliant. But yeah, how she's that prolific, like I don't know. Um, I'm just convinced it's witchcraft. Yeah. Ellen, you're always a good person, Ellen, obviously, because you've got your, your finger right on the pulse of this stuff. But go on, what's your number one pick that you've read recently? Well, it, I'm in the middle. Well, right now I'm reading for the year's best number 15, which is mm-hmm. stuff from this year. So I haven't read that many novels. I'm in the middle of um, Chris Golden's uh, 
Road of Bones, which I is a perfect summer novel because it takes place in the coldest place, one of the coldest places in the world. Um, it's creepy. I mean, it's really good. It's, it's good. You know, good horror. It's good, it's good horror, um, thriller, adventure um, with a monster that's, well, I'm, I'm two thirds away through. It doesn't look good for our heroes. <laughs> for our <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, I highly recommend that. Yeah, and it's like it's as I said, it's hard for me to to rec. I can't even remember what I'm reading. I'm sorry, you know. It's like that's fine. You read a lot. I've been reading for Tor.com. I mean, I you know I had a novella come out that um, a few months ago that I think is really terrific by Malcolm Devlin um, called "And Then I Woke Up." He was on the show to talk about it. It's a phenomenal oh, novella. It's a wonderful novella. It's um so much about it's about misinformation, and it's yeah. Zombie, not zombie novel, and uh, pandemic, not pandemic novel. Really moving, and he's called it a love story, and it's that too. It's most definitely that. Um, so yeah, I recommend that. And, and I'm blank about everything else I've you know read. We <laughs> find you read a lot. I uh, I'm currently reading Paul Tremblay's Paul Bearers Club, which is every bit as good as you'd expect it to be. Oh yeah, I'm um, waiting. Yeah, he's right. Actually, I have I have done. I have the uh, the arc for Don't Fear the Reaper by Stephen. However, I don't have time to read it because it's not coming out till next year. So it's like I can't. I have it on my my table next to me, but I can't even read it. You know, oh, I don't. I don't have isn't time. It? I can't yeah. wait. You read <laughs> the Last Storm, Last Storm by Tim Levin. No, no, I oh, haven't. That's really good. I've asked him Very for a review good. copy of that. I haven't read him for Very a few good. years. The last thing I think I read of his that I really loved was White, his novella. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and his I book, really his book Eden, good. is excellent. What is it called? Sorry, it's called Eden. It's a big oh. kind of eco horror novel. Um, oh. Very, very good fun by Tim Levin. The, the, the two I'm looking forward to. I don't normally do this, but we're amongst friends. The, the two that I've kind of got looking at me from my bookshelves, saying read me, but I can't yet. Are Gabino Iglesias's new one, Devil Takes You Home, oh. and this. Have, have yes. you heard about this Michael Seedlinger book, this Anybody Home? No. Oh, it just Who's he like from Michael who? Sorry? Michael Seedlinger. I know the name. <laughs> it's basically, I've got, it's like this meta deconstruction, but not in an arch cold way. It's basically about a lifelong home invasion serial killer training wow. his hair, training his, his uh, protege. Wow. What's the title? Uh, Anybody Home. Okay, and I haven't read it yet, but it's staring at me, and I, I um, I want to get to Sounds it. Good. Sounds good. Yeah. I'll see if I get it. Right, guys, listen. You've been very generous with your time. Um, I'm sorry it's been an absolute piece of glorious chaos with us all talking over each other. It's fun. I love it. <laughs> but by the, by the time people hear this, it'll all be very smoothed out, and it'll sound lovely, and we'll all sound like we're on top of our game. Um, <laughs> but honestly, I can't say how much I enjoyed this collection. I loved your last one, Ellen. I love this one just Thank as you. much. I mean, the last one made my top three of the year on my little mini ranking. I think this oh, will be up there you. again. Thank you so much. I loved each of your stories individually as well. I think they were they were fabulous. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Well, if you know, the thing is, I wanted to say, if I've led you to know that you need to mis mistreat sweet potatoes, then my job is done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually having them for dinner tonight and now I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Eating them is what pleases me. 
I always try and come up with a kind of whimsical title for these episodes, and I may call this one The Vengeance of the Sweet Potato or something like that. But yeah, listen, guys, Chickadilly, Chickadilly, Nathan, Joe, and Ellen, thank you so much, and thank you for talking scared. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. fairly quick outro this week for a couple of reasons one it was a long episode and i don't wish to presume on too much of your time second <laughs> due to a massive amount of work that i need to get done and attendant crushing anxiety i'm editing this roughly an hour before it's supposed to go live yeah white knuckle podcasting it puts hairs on your chest but turns them gray <laughs> i hope you enjoyed this slight break from the norm Honestly, you, you should have seen and heard the madness of that live recording. I was like a stressed chicken, sort of clucking and pecking at my keyboard, trying to keep it all ticking along nicely. I'm glad with how it turned out, but it may be well before I do another round table. I'm not, not sure my heart and brain can take it. I feel like we hardly talked about the book enough, to be honest. It, it really is a fantastic anthology. I'm beginning to get the hype about this Ellen Datlow person. I think she's going places with the anthology game. Let's let's watch her career with interest. <laughs> with this and the Shirley Jackson anthology, she really has pulled together two utterly fantastic collections of stories with enough variety and cohesion to make a really satisfying read. You can, you can go back and listen to episode 66 if you want to hear my one-on-one conversation with Ellen. It's worth it. She, she pulls no punches. <laughs> There are some highlights of stories in here that I didn't get a chance to mention during the conversation. Glenn Hirschberg has a story called Devil that takes one of my favourite storytelling styles. Basically, Old Man at Bar narrates local folktale. It's fantastic. Margot Lanigan's Widow Light is a really, really creepy read about new motherhood with this blur witch urban legend vibe. Fran Wilde's The Midway is the Lovecraftian kaiju carnival fable that we didn't realise we so desperately needed. And there are plenty more, but the John Langan novella that closes the collection is worth the price of the book alone. It's called Bloodzuga. And if you love John's The Fisherman, and of course you did, then this is a perfect companion piece. It's another tale that maps the history and the lore-tainted corners of his native Hudson Valley. It's fantastic stuff. Chickadilly asked me to mention another anthology that brings in some of that diversity in monstrosity that we talked about. It's called African Monsters and it's edited by Margaret Helgadotter and Jill Thomas. And it promises to put African authors and their folklore front and centre. I haven't read it, but I'm always happy to give projects like that whatever small push I can. Everyone else... Get in touch with your favourite monsters. Well, no, don't get in touch with your favourite monsters. Contact me about your favourite monsters, whether from film or fiction or under your bed or whatever. I'll probably put out a Twitter post following this episode to collate your nightmares and your recommendations. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And please do... I really mean it. And if you want the absolute inside track, you can join Talking Scared Patreon. The link's in the show notes, or just search patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. 
I've just put up a new Whispers episode of Extra Chat with Jason Rekulik, Kirsten White and Scott Hawkins, which has some great insights as well as some quite psychopathic musical behaviour from at least two of those authors. Um, There'll be loads more bonus stuff coming down the never-ending content conveyor belt. I'm even doing a summary of what I read on my summer vacation. (laughs) Otherwise, if you don't want to do that, the best way you can help is by leaving a review wherever you get your podcast from and make it glowing if possible. Onward we go towards the big 100th episode. Can't believe it. We're not quite there yet, but I am back next week as ever. You know, it's been 97 weeks without a break. Christ. My guest will be Tim McGregor talking mermaid horror in lore and is inside of you of one of 2022's biggest horror controversies. But until then, check under your bed, close your wardrobe door tight, stay away from sewer grates, but be kind to the hairy guy in the woods. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>